Norman McManus said, what endeavor could we undertake that would be so reflective of the heart of God that even failure would be success? I remember starting this journey together propelled by the verse in Joshua 3.5 where it said, come, let's consecrate ourselves for in the days to come, the Lord will do amazing things among us. And have we ever been eyewitnesses of the amazing since we began this journey of faith? It's as if God is asking us to dream bigger dreams, calling out to us like he did in Jeremiah saying, call to me and I will answer you and show you great and mighty things you could not believe. We as a church have experienced firsthand the mighty power of the sea-splitting, water-walking, sun-stopping, mountain-moving God. And it's been nothing short of miraculous. The prophet Isaiah boldly asked God for salvation to actually spring up from the ground. And we echo that prayer for this ground that we have broken, asking God to establish his kingdom in Lowell as it is in heaven. We want this land to be cleansed and consecrated for the dreams and desires of God in our community. We know his passion and his purpose for this property, that it would be a place where people who are bound would be loosed, where people who have been hurt would find healing, where people who are guilty would find the name that defeats all their shame, that the people who are lost would find their way back home to the heart of Jesus. Who could have dreamed or dared to imagine this could be possible even two short years ago? But the one who is able to do more than we could ever ask or imagine has chosen to blow our minds saying over and over again to impact over the years, what is impossible for man is possible for me. You see, God has dreams for impact and he's not done yet. He has dreams for every house and every heart in this community. And we want to be a church that seeks to make the dreams of God come true. I believe God's spirit is moving incredibly among us. I believe that we are on the cusp of something huge. I believe Jesus is drawing the lost and the last and the least to his heart. And I believe the mission of God has only just begun because I believe the best is yet to come. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all we could ever ask or imagine, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus forever and ever. Amen. today man I'm a happy camper um, I've been so excited just how God's moving but but uh, there's something about ground moving too that uh, I've, God's always moving but ground hasn't always been moving around here and uh, that's it's just so powerful and uh, to even see the video with Jason and Pat Fleer driving the the big earth moving equipment, they go to our church. And um, I was asking Pat, I'm like, man, I didn't know that you were out with Fleer Brothers with the power equipment and just, you know, doing the payloader thing. She's like, I haven't done that for 20 years. And I'm like, well, you got lucky. You got on the highlight video and you just showed up and happened to be there and we we're shooting that day. So just love that couple. And uh, I was thinking about the land and John sent me a picture, an aerial picture of that land. Um, do you remember this? Do you remember driving by that um, all the time? I remember I was here for 13 years, you know, moved to Lowell, and that was, it's kind of a salvage yard, Noon's property, of just old equipment and, um, you know, kind of a boneyard of sorts. And then this last week, um, a picture was sent by Matt T.D. He took a drone shot of it while they were moving dirt, and I'm like, man, what a transformation and, and the thing I was thinking about, I didn't say this in the other services, but I, I really long for that to be a salvage yard, to stay a salvage yard. 
that the same way that things were salvaged um, when it came to farm equipment and vehicles, that we are there to salvage people's lives, for salvation to take place is where the root word uh, of salvage come, that we would be the salve, salve of God and the salvation of God and the salvage yard of God in this community. I was thinking about a verse in Isaiah 58 where it said, your people will rebuild the ruins and will raise up new foundations and you'll be called repair of broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings. That's what we long to realize um, for God and to make that dream of his come true. To do that literally is awesome, but this is what we long to be spiritually even more in this community, to be a repair of broken walls of people's hearts and a restorer of stories in people's lives, to see salvation spring up from the ground, like Isaiah said, to salvage creation, yes, but to salvage the crown of his creation, which is the human heart. That's us here. He loves us. He loves you today. And he longs to salvage your life wherever you're coming from. This is no small endeavor to dream the dreams and to do the things that God has done through us. Love built this, but a lot of people, through a lot of grit and a lot of guts and a lot of grind, um, have offered themselves, their lives and their blood and sweat and tears to make the dreams of God come true. I, everybody get a bulletin? I wrote a greeting. I know only two of you read that every week, but um, we keep doing it and I'm not sure. It's just an exercise of futility, maybe to make us feel better about ourselves, but I'm actually gonna read it just so that you actually read it for the first time. It says, welcome to Impact. We've come, or you've come on a good day. We're shifting gears from our series on the New Testament called Different to casting a bit of vision for this coming year, what we'll be talking about uh, and what it means to be fully a part of fueling the engine of this movement called Impact Church with our resources. We've seen God do some amazing things over the last 14 years of ministry here, not the least of which we've experienced miraculously over and over again the last three years. But I can... Uh, assure you that it didn't happen accidentally or automatically. It's because bands of people like are gathered here today and different waves of joining our church made a commitment that we must collectively make again today. And the commitment is this, I must do for someone else what someone else did for me. We call it the platinum rule. The golden rule is do unto others as you would have them do unto you. The platinum rule is do for others what other people have done for you. It's that simple, before you came to this church, we were thinking about you. We were creating space for you. We were making it possible for you to come and experience what you've eventually come to enjoy, and some of you have even come to call your home. Before, before we knew you, we were laser-focused on sacrificing from our lives and livelihoods to reach out to more and more lives, your life. If you want a mantra for what I'm talking about, it's shared morale keeps momentum that inspires movement. Movements are never accidents. They may catch us by surprise, but they can always be reverse engineered to a source of sacrifice, always. We have a special treat for you today, and I hope it will awaken something in you that is dying to come to life, because the future of our church depends on all of us absorbing and assimilating what God shows us today. I can't wait to see what God is about to do. Every year we take time as a church a family to talk about the practical implications of being part of a spiritual revival or a movement. Namely, we talk about the stewardship of our financial resources um, and put God first in our finances. And I used to get really, really nervous and sheepish about introducing this tender topic to our church fearing people's reaction but over the years, I've seen that talking about tithing isn't so much about what God wants from you as it is what God wants for you, and that a life aligned with divine order that comes from his word actually leads to a life of divine blessing. It's actually what fascinated me with the series title called First Fresh Flash, which is actually a writing term. If you're a writer, you've maybe heard that before. I love writing, so when I was studying the craft of writing over my sabbatical last year's, I picked up a couple books. One of the books was Bird by Bird by Anne Lamott, a really awesome book. Um, 
And I, as I was devouring that book, I stumbled onto this idea of the first fresh flash or what she called the adolescent voice, which is actually talking or writing without thinking through it so much that you sabotage it by editing out the best part by making it more professional or more pre- presentational. That, that the raw footage of our lives is often the most inspiring and exciting stuff She referred to another book that I was reading, and I wanted to just share a quote out of that book. It says, and I quote, like Lamont, creative writing education or educator, Natalie Goldberg, describes the writing process in terms that are also very pertinent to writing for therapeutic purposes. In her widely used handbook, Writing Down the Bones, Goldberg emphasizes some rules to help get the pen moving and the creative juices flowing. She tells readers to keep the writer's hand moving, to lose control and not cross out or worry about spelling, punctuation, grammar, or get logical. Perhaps most important of all, she urges readers to dive right into the first thoughts or images that come up, even if these are scary or naked. Remember that. She points out that the first thoughts have tremendous energy representing freshness and inspiration, but our internal sensor usually squelches them, so we live in the realm of second and third thoughts, twice and three times removed from the direct connection to the first fresh flash. As I was thinking about God as being first, and the idea of putting God first in every area of our life, particularly today as we talk about our finances, some of these phrases captured my attention. Because I was thinking about life before the fall of mankind in Genesis 3, and, and our nature and our natural inclinations or bents before we censored and edited ourselves, before we went with our second and third thoughts, before we took matters into our own hands and decided to reorder our worlds, putting ourselves at the center and ourselves at the front. And I realized that one of the greatest reasons that many don't put God first in their finances is because of the very thought that Natalie Goldberg described. It's because it's scary and and naked as a thought. It it undoes us in some ways. To, To begin, or I began to realize that we all as humans have this internal sensor that squelches those first inclinations inside of us. And we live in the realm of the second or third thoughts twice and three times removed from the first fresh flash. This is so evident in Genesis as we see the way it was intended to be and what happened when man rebelled and took matters into his and her own hands. The feelings of being naked and unafraid were actually the first effects of the fall and of sin. They were naked and afraid and they hid from God in Genesis chapter three. Adam and Eve literally talked themselves out of their pure first thoughts and desires and edited the story resulting in second thoughts about whether God was first or whether he was just being exclusive. Second thoughts on whether God was good or whether he was greedy or miserly. And it's here that we see the origin of what we battle to this very day, which is the question, who is first in our lives? This is the core question. As I looked at Genesis 1 and 2 with this lens of the first fresh flash, uh, before we meddled with the divine order and sort of monkeyed up the design and desires of God for our life, I noticed some things that caused me to embark on an expedition of sorts through the Bible. The first thing I noticed were the first four words of the Bible. Do you remember them in Genesis? What were the first four words? In the God. In the beginning, God. In other words, in the beginning, God. Before anything else, God. At the start of it all, God. In the first place, God. The first thing we know about God is that he was first. One of his names was Alpha, which means he would go first and he would be first. That he was supreme. That's the first thing we know about his nature. The idea of him being first carried into the first pages of the Bible story in Genesis 1 and 2, if you would open it up, he created the garden and there was this tree, the first tree, and there were all these other trees that they, they had, they could eat from, they could climb up, they could, they could cut down, they could do whatever they wanted with those trees, but of this one tree, they could not eat or they would surely die. 
the first tree. And then we see there was this first day or this idea of Sabbath where there were other days, but then there was Sabbath, the day where God rested. And throughout the Old Testament, you see that that God said that day is to be set apart and to be holy because that's my day. You get the other six days of the week, but my day is set apart. So it's like, this is my tree. This is my day. You get six days. I get one. You get all the trees. I get one. And what you notice about man, and I don't know what it is about our heart, is it's like we want that one thing that we don't have. That the principle that drives me crazy about myself, and I'm talking about my intuition based on my sin nature, is I want what's mine and I want what's his. And the beautiful thing about God and the generosity of God and the generative heart of God is that he gave us the most, he just wants the first. And anytime we interact, even with our finances, we're like, yeah, that's mine. Why do you want that? It's like, I, you can have the most. I just want the first because I'm trying to establish a precedent in your life through the sacrament of my supremacy. This becomes a sacrament just like communion or just like baptism shows new life and communion causes us to remember God's death and Passover in the Old Testament causes him to remember Egypt. Tithing causes us to remember it's all his. He's given it all to me, but there's a firstness and a supremacy of God and he is going to be number one in my life, not me. I get the most. He gets the first. You read on and I loved it. It was God would visit them or walk in the garden in the cool of the day. And if you do some study about the cool of the day, I, I actually experienced it this morning. I'm wearing flip-flops. You know, the coolest part of the day is the morning. And in the morning, he would come spend time with them to have intimate fellowship with them, to walk with them and talk with them and interact with them and create with them together and to enjoy life with them together. And I think the first part of the day is such a critical mind-setting, like heart-setting, perspective-guiding part of the day. It's just that first part of the day, that cool part of the day, be with me. It wasn't just the first part of the the day. This was something that even the psalmist David artistically picked up on in chapter 63 of Psalms. He said, I will seek you in the morning. And in Psalm 57, he put it this way, I will wake the dawn. Like I'll literally get up and the dawn doesn't wake me up. I wake up the dawn. I want to be with you, God, in the first part of the day. Each day, it's yours. The Hebrews, even their first breath at the first part of the day was given to God. And they would breathe. And their very breath, they believed, was the word Yahweh, the primary name of God, which is Yahweh is somewhat the provider, sustainer, creator of all things. And they would go, Yahweh, Yahweh, Yahweh. And they believed that this breath, that the very word of the name of God was breath. And they would give him their first breath. So in the garden, before man rebelled, and experience the curse of second-guessing God and putting him in second place. There's two very clear things. God was first, and we were free. The first four words are, in the beginning, God. The first words spoken into man, I don't know if you know this, is you are free. Not I'm in charge, or this is how it's going down, but you are free to choose. I mean, that is an impressive, powerful thing. First impression God made. And it's so amazing that we took our freedom and decided to use our freedom to become first. And that's exactly what Lucifer did, who was the greatest angel in all of heaven before man was created. Lucifer was the reflective angel who had wrapped the wings of himself around God to reflect his Shekinah glory, but he didn't want to reflect the greatness of God anymore. He wanted to be great himself. And so he rebelled and fell from heaven and took a third of the angels with him, which are demons. But that's another message for another day. I'm just telling you, this idea of wanting to be first 
and laying claim to what is God's and his alone is just a part of the fabric of what has torn in the universe itself from day one. You move on into the law and when he gave the law on those tablets, the first or the 10th of the 10 commandments, the first one, the first tithe of the 10 commandments, so to speak, is there shall be no other gods before me. The rest of these don't even make any sense. The first one is so important. There's no one beside me. There's no one before me. That's the first of the 10 commandments. Then there was something that I'm not sure if you've noticed before, but as Israel came out of Egypt and was in the wilderness, they came into the promised land and the first battle they had was Jericho. And they come to Jericho and God does something that he didn't do with the, the battles that, that came after it. But the first battle, he said, all of what's in this city, all the gold and the silver and all the fabric and all of you know, the cattle and all of the possessions, they, they are not meant to be plundered. You will not divide them among yourselves. You will not loot the city and it will not be taken to your tent. All of this will be devoted to me. In fact, they were called the devoted things. And there was one guy, Achan, who went in and took some, hid it in his tent underneath a carpet and there was disease and something was going wrong in the whole camp because one person took the devoted things. But the first battle was the Lord's. I'm Alpha. I'm going to go first and I'm going to go before you and I'm going to win this battle. But I want you to know that it was me almost to symbolically let you know that I am the first. And the battles after that, you can take and you can spread out to yourselves. It moves into where tithing was instituted with the tabernacle and with the Levites and taking care of the Levites and, and um, even to the temple that they would bring the firstborn son to be blessed and they would bring the firstborn of their flock to God to be sacrificed, one that was unblemished, the best and the first and the rest of the flock was theirs or the first fruits of their crops and their harvest would be brought to God into his temple, into his storehouse to remind them of the sacrament of him being first. They actually never gave the tenth of their first, for first fruit crops or firstborn animals. They only returned them, if you look at the verbiage of the Bible, because they were never theirs to give in the first place. They belonged to God. They were called the devoted things. They simply brought them back or offered them back to him as a symbol of his supremacy. He was first and all else came after him. We see this principle carry into the New Testament when he says the first commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He's the one. Love him with the most and the best with all your vim and all your vigor. And then even as we're reading the end of the Old Testament or the New Testament a couple weeks ago in Revelation chapter two, it stuck out to me as he talked to the church of Ephesus. He said this, but I hold this against you. You've forsaken what? your first love. Remember the height from which you've fallen. Re repent and return to the things you did at first. Remember where I was and now where I am. Put me back at that first love place because I'm a jealous God and I will not give up that in our relationship. Do what you did at first. Re remember, repent, which means turn around and return. That's his call to us today. It's his call to creation every day. Return to the divine order so that you can experience his divine blessing. The first fresh flesh. Putting God first, you can see it throughout some of what I've shared throughout the Old and New Testament. But as I was on my way from Ada to Lowell this last week, it came to my mind this way. At the first, be the first, to go first, with your first, for the first. I dictated that into my phone. I was like, uh, uh, at the first, be the first, to go first, with your first, for the first who is God. That's the challenge that God gives us as it relates to first and his guardian kind of heart over what is first and who is first. I, I was during my sabbatical 
that I decided to read through a lot of the stories of the scripture. And it was cool because I didn't have to put any pressure on the text to get a sermon out of it. I could just be like, Abraham, buddy, dude. And I would pray this way, Abraham, man, you can be whoever you are. I don't need nothing from you. I don't need anything for church. I'm not gonna turn you into a message. I don't need any sound bites. You just be who you are. You relax. You just be yourself. Speak for yourself. I'm not gonna read anything into you. I've got no agenda. I'm just gonna read your story. You just start talking, God. And I would let Abraham just, his life, talk to me because I didn't need anything from him. Don't you love that when you're talking to people that don't have an agenda? And I've noticed I, a lot of times I go into the scripture, I'm like, I need you to do something for me, Abraham. Sunday's coming. You know, I need some information. I need something powerful and memorable. And, ah! and I was like, no, I don't need nothing. So I started reading these stories and just letting them breathe. And I was relaxed and they were relaxed. And, and I, I remember seeing something that I'd never seen. It was even before the law in the first few biographies that I wrote in the Bible or I read in the Bible. And I, I looked at Genesis and I read through and in chapter four, I'd seen this before, but I noticed it afresh in chapter four. It was like God was establishing who's who and who's first in the relationship. And after Adam and Eve were removed from the Garden of Eden in chapter four, the first story is of Adam and Eve's sons, Cain and Abel. And at first you read this story, at first glance it seems confusing and God seems capricious and unhinged in his response until you dig a little deeper into what's being established or reestablished in the story. Cain and Abel come to God to give an offering to God. Before, the, it seems like there was even a precedent. It was almost, before it was explicitly mentioned in chapter one through three of Genesis, it was implicitly by nature known that you bring an offering to God. And this is where we join them in chapter four, verse three. It says, in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of fruit of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat, and the Lord accepted Abel and his offering, but did not accept Cain and his offering. Another translation, he, he did not respect Cain's offering, but he respect Abel's offering. And what you notice, again, at first glance, it, feel, it feels like the crime doesn't fit the punishment, or the reaction doesn't mesh with the action, like what's the big deal? But God's reaction tells us something about his nature, and about the divine order of how he created life to be lived. Things to note in this text is Cain gave, but Abel tithed. Cain gave something to God, but he didn't give his first fruit, where Abel gave the first fruit to God. That in this passage, that's why God honored the one and dishonored the other, because he knew you don't give what you want when you want to God and call that an offering. I call that temperamental giving or uh, the distinction between emotional giving and devotional giving. Devotional giving or the person who gives that's devout is like, God, I'm giving you the first and the best and then the rest is what I'm, I'm learning to live off of, but I don't come to you with the leftovers or my loose change after I've lived my life. I'm starting with you with the first and the best of my flock instead of I'm just gonna bring you stuff. There's a lot of people that give. There's very few people that tithe. And so right off the bat in Genesis 4, like who told them that? He, he knew better before we even have any dictation or commandment that God deserved that. I was reading in the Bible and I went on from Noah and to Abraham and, and I was reading Abraham's life and I just took a picture of the screen. I would just write things down, every chapter writing things just for my own benefit to learn. And from chapter 12 to 24, it was Abraham's. But in Genesis 14, there's a story of Abraham that gives to Melchizedek, the priest of Salem, a tenth of all his possessions. And tithing started with Cain and Abel and followed through to Abraham thousands of years later. And he didn't give to get it, says in the text. He actually refused compensation so that they couldn't say, I made Abraham rich. I'd never seen that. So in the story, if you read it, Abraham's like, no, I don't want anything back. This is a tithe to you so that you can't say, 
my riches, Abraham did this so that he could give, get rich. He didn't give to get. He just gave as a tithe to this priest, Melchizedek and Salem. And then I, I went through and I was reading about Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And again, in the story of Jacob, there's all these different storylines, human conspiracy, cutting corners, implicating God, conscious calls, stolen identity. I'm like, man, there's a message in here. You know, someday, hurt people, hurt people, the stone pillow, unaware of awesome. And then all of a sudden, there was this moment where he said to God, after he had run so long, I'm gonna give you a tenth of all that I have. And I'm like, even before the law commanded this in tithing and first fruits and firstborn, these men, these pillars of the faith, this Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob even understood that God gets a tenth and they, they tithe. And we're talking about wealthy individuals. I think Job is seen as the most wealthy individual and then it would be Solomon and then it would be Abraham and tithing of everything you have a tenth to God would be an enormous amount of resources, but they just knew he was that awesome and that worthy and that worth it. It moved into the New Testament as we're reading through the New Testament in the book of Luke. I noticed, this isn't in my notes, but I noticed on Luke 2 in the Christmas story that Mary and Joseph took Jesus on the eighth day to be circumcised to consecrate him as their firstborn to the Lord. Jesus, before he even knew what was happening, was a part of this firstborn order of saying, you're not ours, you're God's, we're giving you back to him. Even as we raise you, you are his, and he, we are stewards of God's blessing as your parents. And then they, they gave a sacrifice at the temple of, of two pigeons, two doves. And then I was reading through Luke and Luke chapter 11, 12, he was talking to the religious leaders and he said, woe to you Pharisees because you actually do give a tenth of your mint and rue and other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. In other words, Jesus is saying, it's not one or the other, it's always both and to Jesus. Justice toward man and reverence toward God in the horizontal and in the vertical both matter to me that discipleship is both a life that you live and a tithe that you give. I know some people who tithe faithfully, but they live like hell. And I know some people who live great lives and don't tithe. And God said, I want you to do the former without neglecting the latter, that it is both and. And God teaches these religious leaders the divine order of things. I was reading in Luke, and this passage has always very much disturbed me in Luke chapter 9, starting verse 57. Jesus was trying to teach them things. It says, as they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus replied, well, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. I was fine with that. I'm, I'm cool with that. The next verse I struggle with or struggled with, where he said, he said to another man, follow me. But the man replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Seems like a legitimate, sane request, right? And Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. What the what? And just so that they understood that he meant what he was saying and didn't like, that, that was, that he did not mean that. Another one says to him, I'll follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Completely rational request. And Jesus replied, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service to the kingdom of God. Does this bother anybody here? This is very much Cain and Abel. Like, he gave you stuff and he gave you stuff. What's the big deal? The big deal is the word first. It's the only thing I can find in this passage that God is taking issue with is you don't understand first is a big deal to me. It's not that I'm unfeeling or irrational. It's not that I don't care about your friends or funerals or families. But when you say, let me first do this and let me first go and do this, that is human nature. We are always looking for a way to rationalize why not yet, not now, but I will soon. 
And God says, I do not want you to distinguish that way anymore. He's actually challenging or opposing this idea that you can follow God without putting him first. That if you're gonna follow me, that I'm gonna go first. And that's not always going to make sense, but that is going to be the way life is divinely ordered. He is the divine provocateur, always provoking people to ask him a question because his requests offend them at the core of their being or their belief system. I don't know about you, but I, I get done reading like, well, God, I'll follow you. I gotta go bury my dad. Charles Holdridge, he raised me. It's so important. And he's like, let the dead bury their dead. First, I gotta say goodbye to my family. Won't you put your hand to the plow? You look forward and you don't turn back. And you know what rises up in me because he's provoking it or invoking it in me? This is the question I feel rise up in me like a junior hire. Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are asking something like that of me? And I can almost hear Jesus like I thought you'd never ask. I am first. I own the word first. I own the place first. I own the name first. By nature, I can be none other than first because I am supreme. I'm supreme. That's why he was always asking, who do people say that I am? Oh, who do you say that I am? Because he's wanting to know, are you getting this first thing and this following thing mixed up? He cares about funerals and friends and family. I, I was even thinking about um, other passages where he said, unless you hate your father and mother, yea, even your own life, you're not worthy to follow me. It's probably not a very popular thing to share with the American church in 2018, right? That is just not user-friendly theology. That is not. That is very offensive. What do you mean hate my family and my, my wife and my kids compared to you? And what he is saying is, he says elsewhere, honor your father and mother. It's the first command with a promise that it may go well with you and you might live long on the earth. Like, how do I honor my father and mother and hate my father and mother? What he's saying is, is it's not about your mom and your dad and funerals and families and friends, but your love for me should make your love for other things look like hatred in comparison. That's like how much more awesome I am. It's like, who do you think you are asking that of me? I think I'm awesome. Not me. I'm not talking about me. God thinks he was awesome. He's like, I'm awesome. No, Lake Michigan's awesome. No, no, it's not. It's cool. Really cold, actually, right now. Not just cool, but it's not awesome. I am first. I'm supreme. I'm awesome. I'm superior in every way, shape, or form to anything and everything and anyone and anyone everyone. He establishes that foundation as a sacrament to his su supremacy. It just, you read in the Old Testament, it's like in the beginning, God. Actually, the New Testament or New Covenant starts the same way in John, where he says, in the beginning was the Word, which is Jesus. In the beginning was Jesus, the Word. He's the beginning. He's the start. He's the first. I was reading through his, his first sermon and he brought up the idea of the first in his first sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. And, and you may know this text in Matthew 6.33 where he says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and everything else will be added to you. He, he's establishing that idea of that order of what's first, who's on first and what's on second is the old, you know, uh, funny thing. Who, who did that? Abbott and Costello, right. Who's on first, what's on second? That's literally what he's doing here. And I, I think Paul picked up on this because in Acts 17, he said the same thing as he was teaching the church. God gives all men life and breath and everything else. He brings in the everything else. Jesus is establishing the first fresh flash, which is seek first the kingdom of God, life, and his righteousness, breath, and everything else, and everything else, right? We see his character in 
this order. I am the creator. I am life. I'm the source. I am actually the sustainer. I'm your breath. I'm your sustenance. I am actually your provider. If you'll trust my providence, I'm your provider. I'm your everything else. I'm the one that will give you the substance of your life. Humanity or Christianity monkeys this up and we switch the order of priority and we are about everything else and we take care of that first. And then we go after our own righteousness, our own rightness, and we strive for that in our own strength. And then the seek first kingdom of God comes at the bottom and we'll seek to do it if we have something left. There is an order to things in the Bible. Like that's why there's, in the Bible, you get married and then you have sex. In the Bible. I know that's not how the world functions, but this whole sex before marriage, it ruins things. In the Bible, it's like if you don't work, you don't eat. And the reason why God puts that, that principle in there is because you can't continue to consume if you don't contribute. Does, do you believe that? Like at some point you have to move toward, we will not have a world if we just consume. So if you don't work, you don't eat. That's in the Bible to the Thessalonians, right? I would even say in prayer, we're supposed to enter his, his courts with thanksgiving and his, his courts with praise. So when you come into prayer, you're saying thank you to God instead of can you. A lot of times like, can you do this? And can you do this? And help me and help me, help me. He's like, what, what about thank you instead of can you? There's a divine order to things. You put your clothes on and then you go to work, right? That's not in the Bible, but that's a good idea, right? It's just, there's order to how things function naturally and best. This is God's divine order, according to Matthew 6.33. Seek first his kingdom. He comes first in all things, his righteousness. He helps me become whole and holy and everything else which is when he is first, the rest is blessed. This is the first fresh flash. Kingdom first, wholeness next, then everything else. Make sense? Kingdom first, wholeness next, then everything else. So as a church, we read through the Bible and talk about things throughout the year of how to be like Christ, to emulate his actions and his attitudes. But one time a year, we talk about this idea of putting God first in our finances. And many of you do that here. And it's only to sort of affirm and confirm, like, great job, keep doing that. But we're also inviting in new pockets of people to be the God bod so that his body can be all that it was meant to be and dreamt to be by God. In Matthew 6, even before chapter 33, he talks about laying up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust don't corrupt, thieves don't break through and steal. He says, where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be also. He knows the psychology of this. And the psychology is this. He knows that our worship follows our wallets. Our wallets do not follow our worship. What we give to us first becomes first in time because our hearts were coded by our creator that way. We were hardwired with the first fresh flash before we had second thoughts and put God in second place. The way you lay up your treasures in heaven is by investing your treasures on earth with eternity in mind. And there may not be a greater warfare of worship that goes on than when you surrender your wallet to God and say, your first place in my budget and my finances. You will feel a consternation and a conflict in your soul, specifically in American society where really money is our God. And it's what has our security and our control is so bound up in this. God says, unless you release that and trust me, then you're just not gonna feel my peace and my joy and all of the stuff I promised to give you. This action of tithing is the last beachhead of breakthrough in many people's journey of learning to follow God. It's the last hill that people die on. It's another way of saying it. And I've discovered something about people in the last seven years of, of leading the church. 
And I never thought I would be a guy to have to step up and to sort of speak for God on his behalf in the word to do this. I remember going to ministry and just being a youth pastor and then being an associate pastor. I'm like, I am so glad I don't have to do that. And then God's like, you have to share with people the blessing of this. You have to challenge people to who I am and who they are and lead them in um, this paradigm shift for so many people. What I've learned when you start talking about people giving 10% of their tithes to God, that, that people struggle with it. There's three kinds of people that struggle with it. People who make too little, people who make just enough, and people who make too much. People who make too little don't have enough. People who make just enough, or I just got to the place where I'm making ends meet and I don't have enough to do the 10%. And ironically, the people who make too much are the ones that I'm not giving God that much. I mean, I, I make this much money. I will tip God, but I will not tithe, you know? And so they tip on services rendered, but they can't fathom, like, if they make $10,000 a month, I'm giving $1,000 a month to God? Are you kidding me? Or somebody making $50,000 a month, I'm not giving $5,000, I'll give $1,000 a month to God. It's actually easier for a, a woman coming here, a single mom has 100 bucks giving $10 than a person who makes like $50,000 a month giving $5,000 a month. Everybody in every stage of your life will find a sufficient excuse and a perfectly sensible reason to talk yourselves out of tithing. I've learned this. We are creatures that are looking for second and third thoughts instead of the first fresh flash. So we're going to do something in the next 120 days. I'm calling it the first and 10. It's kind of a football thing. You know, first and 10. First goes to God, and that's 10%. 120 days, May through June, July, and August. We're going to have a challenge. But it's not a challenge like you think. It's not, though we're going to be challenged, the challenge actually comes from Malachi 3, where God actually taunts us to tithe. He actually says, to us, test me. In Malachi 3, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. It's the only time in the whole Bible God tells us to test him. Another translation is prove me in this. I dare you to like put me to the test so that I can prove myself to be faithful to my promises. I'm dying to prove myself. Ask something great of me. And he gives us the throwdown, the challenge. And so we're going to challenge God, take him up on his challenge to do this. And the challenge for all of us coming into the next 120 days is this at the first, be the first, to go first with your first 10% for the first who is supreme, the Alpha, the one and the only the beginning, the start, the one who is before all and above all. The prayer that I want us to all pray together going into the next 120 days as we challenge God is, God, we want to bless you so that you can bless us so that we can bless others. To me, it's all about God being blessed so that he can bless me so that I can like spill over and have blessing for others. And I have people talk about our church quite a bit to us. And I took some people on tours through our church this week because we're somewhat of an anomaly in the community that we're in, the size we are and how old we are and what God is doing. And they're very interested in like, what's the formula? Like, what's the secret sauce? What's the silver bullet? And I'm like, one of the things that I always mention is we have a body of people that are so sacrificial and generous and it, it's it leads to this i don't know this catalytic movement that if, if and and i remember growing up just the idea that god's gonna do this thing with or without you and i thought that that was like a way of god saying i'm supreme but I've noticed the scriptures that God does, doesn't do things with or without us, that he can do things with or without us if he wants to, but that's not how he's chosen to function. He wants to co-author things and co-labor together. And so when people actually like are incited and excited to join God in the story of God, the church advances. It's amazing that God will 
not do things with or without us, that he's like, man, I am counting on you to come through. And some of these ways that he counts on us is for us to be the bodies created us to be and to put him first in our finances. And it is an amazing what God does. God bless us so that we can bless you and bless others. That's our prayer. And, and I'm hoping some people here that for the first time do this and it's as if God will say, well, that's a first. Next week, wouldn't it be awesome for God to be like, that's a first. That's a first. Never seen them do that. And you will find that where your treasure is, your heart will start gravitating to your treasure. God, we just want you to be first and foremost in our life. That we want following you and you being first to be synonymous. God, we have so much that we're looking forward to even as we watch that video. That video would not even be taking place if there weren't a bunch of people in this place preparing the way for others to experience you. So we wanna do for others what others have done for us. And we want to put you first in our lives so that you continue to trust us. So we entrust our first to you so that you will trust us with your movement in this community. So God, I, I know that there are all kinds of gremlins <laughs> inside of our brains right now, all kinds of, you know, second thoughts and all kinds of, you know, things twisting and pulling and, and making us feel guilty and shamed and condemned. That's not you. You just convict. You're the one who woos us and, and calls us and invites us. So get the enemy out of here. We want to hear your voice and we want to follow your invitation into this abundant life that you've called us to live and to give. As we live out this day, God, may we wake up each morning, take our first breath and open our eyes and just spend time with you and put you first in our life. And I can't wait to see what happens when we challenge you and challenge ourselves to put you first. We just wait with bated breath and expectation of what you're going to do as we all pull together in the same direction in this area of our finances. You're first, Lord. You're first. We lift you up high and lifted up. And we pray all this in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Hey, you're dismissed. Thanks for coming today. I will live my